My name is Georgina Smith, and I'm Head of Distribution and Client Services for Innate Investment Platform, and your host for this episode. Today, we will be featuring content from our second RDR webinar that I hosted with Jen Anderson, and the topic is CAT2 licenses. We also explored other changes, such as freeing up movement between advisor firms and gap-filling restrictions. This follows our previous podcast, where Jen and I introduced the whole topic of RDR and talked broadly about some of the things that the FSCA really want to look at and change. If you want to understand more about it, please go back and listen to that episode. This was a great session, and our advisors found it really insightful, with many follow-up comments and requests on more information, which we're always happy to help with. Let's take a listen. I'd like to introduce you to Jennifer Anderson. Not only is Jen our Head of Product and Communications, she's also my absolute go-to person for all things technical and regulatory. Uh, A big welcome back to Jen. Thank you very much for joining me. We're going to be covering in some depth the FSCA's thinking around the CAT2 license, and there's some significant and potential changes there. We're also going to uh, be exploring the suggested changes to equivalence of reward. And whilst our audience may think that this is only relevant to Tidal or PSA firms, actually put this together with other changes we spoke about in webinar one, such as freeing up the movement of advisors between FSPs and gap-filling restrictions, um, these three items could well mean we see significant movement between PSA and RFA firms in the future. Finally, we're going to try and pull all of this together, everything we've covered, by looking at a couple of case studies. So, Jen, let's start by kicking off today's session and spending a bit of time talking about uh, the investment value chain, because it's important in terms of positioning the FSCA stance from an investment reforms perspective and specifically the CAT2 license. Sure. Morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. So, If you have a look at the high-level value chain in our industry, you can see a few things at play. The first is just how many layers there are. So right at the top there, we've got the client, and connecting the client into our industry is is financial advice, financial planner, financial advisor. And from there, we move through the layers. Some clients will be uh, receiving portfolio construction services, um, model portfolio type services, and manager selection. And then as we move through right towards the tail end of the value chain, you'll see there's asset management and then right at the bottom, uh, custody or administration services. And there's a lot of different moving parts here, aren't there, Jen? And it must be very difficult for a client to understand who does what and what value do they add? Mm, Definitely, definitely true. There's also a mix of product suppliers and service providers in this value chain. So, for example, and we touched on this in the last session, an insurer and a Manco, a CIS manager, are product suppliers, but a CAT2 and a LISP, which is a CAT3 in this diagram, are service providers. In terms of why that's important, at the moment in the current regulatory landscape, product suppliers have much more accountability and responsibility for the products they offer and the advice linked to those products. And to me, this complex value chain is one of the reasons why the FSCA is making such an effort to engage with all of us and consult with stakeholders before they pass any laws in this space specifically. And I think that's because the possibility for unforeseen consequences, unintended consequences in certain layers or for certain business models in their entirety is quite high. 
And Jen, it's interesting to note that traditional asset management in terms of managing unit trusts, um, it's, it's right towards the far end of the chain. It's a long way away from the client, isn't it? Mm, you're exactly right. Just look at how far away it is there, uh, almost at different ends of that value chain. And practically, this means that there's no way for an asset manager managing a unit trust to get close to the specific needs of a large number of clients buying into that fund and across that distance and all those layers of the value chain. And this, I think, is one of the reasons that we can see a disconnect between great advice and those advice outcomes and great unit trusts and investment solutions because they're just so disconnected. Uh, And that's particularly true for more complex client needs. For example, trying to draw a sustainable income when you're retired. And as we all know, probably listening to this session today, that that's one of the reasons why a model portfolio solution can add so much value to clients and advisors. Because model portfolio investment management is so much further up the value chain. It's right there next to the advisor and the client. So what that means for me is it's much easier to create a more bespoke solution that's much more tailored to a specific group of clients' needs. Uh, that's so true, Jen. And, and, and when you think about it, there are currently, what, 500 or so CAT2 advisors registered with the FSCA. And our audience may well remember that there was a lot said uh, in the 2018 FSCA RDR paper about the CAT2 license and its broad application across the client value chain. Why do you think it's so important to the FSCA? Well, that CAT2 license is used in multiple places. It governs investment management and the asset management uh, section of the value chain right towards the one end, as well as portfolio construction, manager selection, executing instructions by signing for clients, and also models. And that's sort of all the way up at the other end of the value chain. So I think what the FSCA is grappling with, and this was really at the heart of that 2018 paper, is whether that CAT2 license is too broad in its application. Can you really have one license to cover such a wide range of activities at different levels? And that 2018 paper also clearly recognized the growing use and importance of model portfolios, and it questioned whether a different license was needed for model portfolios compared to traditional asset management. And has the FSCA uh, come to a decision on that, Jen? The overwhelming feedback that I certainly saw of the 2018 paper was that the industry felt that investment management is fundamentally the same, regardless of whether it's happening within a model portfolio or in a unit trust structure or any other type of solution. So the feeling, and I agree with that, is that the expertise that you require, for example, to select managers is no more or less complex, whether it's done within a model portfolio solution or some other solution. And therefore, how that that sort of extends is that DFMs should be held to the same standard as traditional asset managers when it comes to licensing requirements and reporting. And the FSCA seems to agree with this view. So now this latest 2019 paper that came out proposes that all investment managers are licensed according to one discretionary investment management license. And this will ensure a level playing field and that investment managers offering the same type of service are going to be held to the same standards. What you're saying, though, Jen, is that DFMs will be licensed in exactly the same way as uh, unit trust asset managers. 
Yes, that's exactly right. To the extent that they perform the same activities. So the FSCA is proposing one investment management license for everyone. What they have recognized is that the activity of selecting stocks, for example, is quite different to the activity of selecting managers or alternatives in terms of the skill set you need, your experience, the tools and systems you use, and all of your processes and things like that. So what they're proposing is one license, as I said, but with three sub-activities. And those activities are being proposed as asset management, which is made up of selecting assets and asset classes, so stocks and other instruments and the like, multi-management, which would cater for manager selection, and that would be regardless of whether you're doing that within a model portfolio or a fund of funds type of structure. And the last thing which really mops it all up is alternative investment management. And that'll cover hedge funds, um, private equity, and other alternative structures. And I think the thinking there is that that will probably replace the current CAT 2A license uh, in its current format. So a CAT 2 within their one license can be licensed for one, two, or all of those three subcategories, depending on what, uh, what they want to do with their investment management license. Wow. I, I know many DFMs who manage models for third parties and advisors with CAT2 licenses who manage models just for their own internal use within their firms will be watching today. How do you think these changes are going to affect these guys going forward? Model portfolio managers will need to have this discretionary investment management license, which is the CAT2 license, essentially. And they're going to at least have to have that multi-management sub-activity within that license. And that's regardless of whether you're a professionalized DFM running models for a whole lot of firms or whether you're just running models for, for use within your own firm. What we do imagine is going to happen is that the requirements for the license will probably primarily be at the core level. So most of the requirements will be the same across those three sub-activities. Um, but on top of that, there may be some specific requirements for each of the three sub-activities. And the FSCA's current thinking is specifically that the experience requirement and the class of business training requirement in particular may need to be tailored to be slightly different for the three sub-activities within that license. So in summary, Jen, those who use a CAT2 license for building models, whether they are used internally or for third-party advisors, are likely to have the same level of requirements to attain at both the main license level and whichever sub-activity they fall into. So with this in mind, Jen, do you think the CAT2 license will become harder to get and keep than it is currently? FSCA asked a lot of questions about this in the paper, and in the responses I certainly saw from the industry, the industry seems to be of the opinion that the current requirements are, are largely sufficient. I'm not sure I agree in all instances, and I'm also not sure that the FSCA is going to agree, and I think that's why they're asking all these questions. And while I know it's so tempting to, to have a license that's really easy to get because it, it makes life easier for all of us that are, are licensed FSPs. The risk you run there is that if the requirements for a license are not stringent enough, what that leads to is just a flood of cat in the market because it's so easy to get. And then what you'll see, and I think you see it to an extent at the moment, is a wide dispersion of skill sets and 
propositions and, and just um, quality in, in that CAT 2 space. There's just a really wide gap between CAT 2s. I suspect if the FSC is really serious about professionalizing our industry, they are going to consider putting some additional conduct standards in place to govern certain things. So, for example, and this, this is just my thinking, but I think it's quite likely that we'll see them asking for some evidence of how can a manager quantitatively and qualitatively assess asset managers and do their manager selection, both when they set up and construct a portfolio and on an ongoing monitoring basis. I think that would be something quite sensible to, to look at strengthening in terms of the requirements. Other things they may do is, is say, provide us evidence that you have an investment committee. And on that investment committee, is it just people from within your CATU, from within your firm, or is there some independent, non-executive type representation on that committee? And something else that I, I, I really wouldn't be surprised if we saw is some sort of requirement to ensure that your portfolios align with the advice process that advisors are using to put clients into those solutions. And particularly in the PSA or TIDE space, I really wouldn't be surprised if we saw something like that come out. And what we've seen already with some of the larger networks in the country is that they're already moving there. They're anticipating things like that. So we're seeing a, a couple of, of the bigger networks coming out with a very strong centralized investment proposition, and they're clearly coupling that and linking that to a good advice process. So as I said, these are just some of my thoughts. The paper didn't lay out things like this specifically. But what I can say for sure is if any additional fit and proper requirements come out or conduct standards from the regulator, it is going to raise the bar for CAT 2s and it is going to make that CAT 2 license more difficult to get, without a doubt. Hmm. And what would this mean for firms with a CAT 2 license already in place? Ah, oh, my favourite question. We covered this a little bit in the last session. So, as we said there, there's, there's really two routes that the regulator can go when they bring out new regulation. The first is to vest, and that's to say that everybody who, who's already got the licence can keep the licence, even if they don't necessarily meet all of the requirements. I think in this instance, for this type of thing, uh, that's pretty unlikely. We're probably more looking at a transition arrangement and a transition period. So how that will work is the requirements will apply to everybody. New entrants getting a CAT 2 as well as existing CAT 2s, but all of the firms with an existing CAT 2 will be given a period of time to transition and to, to get their businesses into a state where they can comply with all of those new requirements. Yeah, and, and where will this leave advisors who maybe can no longer meet the new CAT 2 requirements? What would they do? It really depends on what you're using that CAT 2 license for. If you're using it for model portfolio construction and management or any other type of genuine investment management, you'd need to, to think about partnering with someone who is going to keep their CAT 2, a, a professionalized DFM firm, for example, and outsourcing that part of your proposition to that CAT 2 who's going to keep their license. Yeah, I, I mean, we know there are a lot of CAT2 uh, license holders out there who are using their license only to sign instructions for their clients. So, so where does this leave them? What about them? FSC has actually done a lot of thinking about this, and it first came up in the 2018 paper, and there were 
a lot more questions and comments about it in this 2019 paper. So they've definitely recognized that as a need in our industry for clients and their advisors. And by, by the service we're describing is where currently a CAT 2 will sign instructions for platforms or, or mancos or wherever the client's portfolio is on behalf of their clients without the client having to sign. And that obviously has quite a few benefits for advisor and client just in terms of uh, convenience and timing. You know, sometimes a client... Uh, is away for, for eight weeks and during that period something significant is happening which requires an adjustment to their portfolio. So we do see the CAT2 being used a lot for that. What the FSCA is saying in this space, and again, I think it's actually quite sensible, is they're saying that's not true investment management. And I think we can all agree with, with that sentiment. So what they're proposing there is something they're calling for now, a mandate for convenience for these situations. So... What the FSCA is thinking in this space and their, their position on this is that this mandate for convenience option that will be available to advisors will form part of the CAT 1 license. So what that means is that you don't need to have a CAT 2 to be able to make use of this. It'll be part of the CAT 1. So you can see there that they are trying to make a plan and find a solution for all of those guys who just use a CAT 2 for, for signing instructions. They're also suggesting that this mandate is facilitated via a standard template. So uh, in there, I think they're trying to ensure that there's very little wiggle room, if I could say that, for firms to add all sorts of, of additional things into the mandate, which it's not intended for. And in terms of the, the scope of the mandate, the suggestion in the 2019 paper was that it only enabled a rebalance back to the original fund weightings that, that were agreed with the client. So, you know, we've asked the question and we've posed the question to the FSCA is, you know, would it be sensible to widen that slightly? So, for example, if I apply my mind, I can't see a lot of risk in, for example, permitting additional investments into an account according to uh, the specific mandates or portfolio weightings. So, you know, there's a possibility that they will add other transactions and other capabilities into that, that mandate. But I suspect knowing where the FSCA is on this and knowing their intention with regards to this, that the final mandate that we see come out and the final rules around that will actually still be quite narrow and specific. The last thing here is you'll see that the FSCA in the paper proposed that this was limited this mandate for convenience to natural persons only. I don't think that's going to be implemented in the final version. The industry provided a lot of good commentary there that that probably wasn't necessary and was maybe too narrow uh, an application for the functionality. Last thing important to note is that you're not going to be able to charge an additional fee for this. So this is going to have to form part of the standard advice fee between an advisor and a client. There's nothing extra that you'd be allowed to levy in terms of performing the service for your client. Well, so what you're saying there, Jen, is that any Cat 1 can make use of this mandate for convenience option. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. The FSCA is asking about whether there'd be additional fit and proper requirements, but at the moment it seems as if they think that probably won't be necessary. 
What they are suggesting is there may be some extra governance standards for those FSPs and those cat ones who want to make use of this option. But it's it's all things that to me look very sensible and that I'd imagine firms would be wanting and needing to do in any case. So they're talking about things around mandate control. You need to be able to know which of your clients have signed a mandate. Um, communication to customers, and that's vital. You know, if you're transacting on behalf of a customer, you need to have a mechanism to be able to tell them what you've done and why. They're yeah. talking about record keeping and they're talking about a little bit of extra regulatory reporting. So I think all of that sounds quite practical. Um, and, and I can certainly say as a platform, as a, a service provider to all of our firms, we're certainly starting to wrap our minds around it and, and starting to think about how can we assist in that space? How can we make it easier for the firms and the advisors that partner with us to keep up with these requirements and to comply? Yeah, it, it ranges from a whole range of different things that a, that a product supplier can do from, from helping uh, with that signed mandate. And we talk about signed and signatures, but of course, we're in the digital world now. So how do we move into that? And of course, then um, helping with that compliance burden as well. So, so how could we help around that? There's all sorts of things for, for us as innate to get our heads around here as well, isn't there? Um, but there's an awful lot to contemplate here. And, and um, but before we wrap up this CAT2 license discussion, is there anything else you think that our audience should know about, about this subject? Perhaps let's end off the CAT2 section with a quick discussion around cost disclosures and reporting. And these are things that, that are pretty much always touched on in, in the FECA's discussion papers around investments. I think the first thing that's going to interest our audience is that the FSCA is suggesting that the EAC, that measure that you know all ASISA members currently use, is actually applied more widely. And I think it's probably quite likely in the next few years we're going to see that EAC requirement being elevated up from just being an ASISA standard to actually being regulated to being a law. And then it'll apply to everybody and it may apply in a, a lot more of a formalized way. They're also suggesting that people start providing EACs and providers start doing that when a client does a switch. So that's certainly something that we also, in the back of our minds, preparing for and architecting for as and when that, that could roll out. A last point to note, which I think will be very interesting to, to everyone who's, who's with us today, is it seems very likely that MDDs, as they're called now, or fact sheets that we, we oldies used to call them and still probably call them, is... Uh, that those will be required for all investment management solutions. And that's whether you are offering a unit trust out to the market, some other type of solution, or quite importantly for today, a model portfolio. And I know many of the DFMs that we do business with already have this service. They're already doing monthly fact sheets and reporting to their clients. But if you're listening today and you do run model portfolios and you don't have this as part of your proposition, I would really recommend that you start doing your homework now, start to get ahead of this and start to look into how you would meet the requirement of providing a monthly fact sheet for your models to the clients who use you. Wow, that's a great whistle-stop tour of the implications of what the FSCA is thinking about around the CAT too. Um, I'd like to spend a little bit of time now, if it's okay with you, Jen, talking about equivalence of reward. Of course, this is something that will primarily be of interest to those in the PSA space, but it could have uh, significant knock-on effects in the RFA space. Could you give us a, a quick update there, please, Jen? Yes, of course. So for those of you who aren't familiar with it, equivalence of reward was also included in that first RDR paper back in 2014 where we saw those 55 
proposals coming out and being tabled by the then FSB. In principle, what equivalence of reward is all about is it aims to level the playing fields in terms of remuneration between tied advisors, tied to an insurer specifically here, uh, and non-tied advisors or RFAs in the new language. And the reason that this is necessary is because non-tied advisors have limits on the commission they can earn when they sell products for an insurer. Those limits and those caps don't apply to tied agents. They're not subject to those regulatory commission ceilings. So what equivalence of reward measures should result in is that the total compensation that you can earn for the same amount of sales if you're tied or non-tied should be roughly the same. That's what they're trying to achieve. You might wonder why. Why is a regulator interested in how much advisors get paid by, by their own product supplier? And the main concern here is that uncapped remuneration can result in a lot of churn and can result in behaviours that, that, in the end, lead to poor outcomes for clients. And I think we can all think of scenarios where that could be the case. In the equivalence of reward space, most of the regulation, again, here is still in discussion phase, although it may be slightly further along than some of the other RDR discussions in the investment space. What I can say from the latest update we received again in 2019 from the FSCA is that they do seem to be relaxing their stance here somewhat when it comes to equivalence and reward. Wow. So can you tell us uh, some of the key things that the FSCA is now proposing? The first thing that's interesting here is this is obviously a, a very sensitive topic for insurers. It affects the heart of their business and how they fund their distribution models. And the FSCA over the last couple of years really to the credit has spent an enormous amount of time with some of the insurers, understanding their business models and understanding just how in 2019 with an updated set of proposals or recommendations for the equivalence of reward. And the first, and this is, this is the crux, this is the, the thing everybody wants to know is what is the percentage? What is the cap? And the FSCA is still saying that they want to set that limit at 15%. And what that means is that a tied agent won't be able to receive any additional incentives over and above their normal remuneration of salary over a 12-month period, over and above 15%. What they have done, and this is, this is really what led me to say, I think the original proposals around this was that it would apply at an agent level. So each and every single advisor in that tied channel would need to meet that 15% cap. What they're now saying is that the insurer can apply this at an agency level or a channel level. And what that means is it gives the insurer a lot more flexibility. Certain agents could earn above the 15% and certain agency or the channel, it doesn't exceed that cap, then they would meet the regulations. That having been said, I think it could still be problematic anecdotally, for example, that some of these arrangements currently pay an upside of, of up to 40%. And that's obviously way in excess of that 15% limit. Yeah, it sounds like they're thinking about the administration of this as well. The, the you know, how are they going to monitor this as much as, uh, you know, making it perhaps a, a bit more practical uh, for both the PSA and the regulator themselves. So, Jen, you know, the traditional route into uh, becoming a financial advisor uh, can be to learn your trade in the tied space. Are there any special measures being considered here, though? Because it sounds like there's quite strict measures elsewhere as you go through your career in the PSA space now? Mm, mm, it's very true. 
and I think this is one of the learnings that the FSCA has has gleaned from all the discussions with the industry, all of the commentary, and all of this time that they've spent with with some of the insurers. And it's really that an an insurer tied space can be a great incubator environment for new entrants to enter the the industry. So what they're saying now in the current proposals is that any new agent that enters a tied force will be exempt from these equivalents of reward limits for the first two years of their career. And what this will really allow is it'll ensure that those entrants can earn a living wage um, because otherwise that that might be an issue and then the industry really isn't attractive to, to young guys coming in. And that uh, that exemption will also mean that the insurer is able to to invest in those people to spend on their training to get them up to speed in terms of regulatory requirements re exams uh, and all of those good things that we all have to go through in order to be to be able to operate in this industry properly so very interesting and i think a, a good call there by the fsca should that proposal go through in the final version and for me it's something so interesting it, surely an opportunity in the RFA or independent space as well. How do we in the independent space think about bringing young and up-and-coming advisors into the industry? To me, it's it's a huge opportunity. It may not be easy to solve, but I think for those who do solve it, it would definitely be a great way to grow your business. Yeah, I, I must agree with you there, Jen. Very rarely do I go to a, uh, an independent financial advisor, an RFA, and see uh, uh, people who are under, under 35 really working there. So I think there probably is, is definitely an opportunity there to, to uh, bring people on uh, who are new into the, into the industry. But so, Jen, when do you think these changes are going to come? And, and, and what do you think it means for the bigger, organi- for the bigger industry? We were expecting draft regulation this year. So if we remember how the the sort of the path of regulation goes when it comes to, to the FSCA, we'll typically have these discussion documents come out for, for complex regulation like this. Then we'll see a draft regulation that again goes for comment through the industry. Sometimes we'll see a second draft if necessary, if there's a lot of, of meaty and, and uh, interesting commentary on the first one. And then we'll see... Uh, the final regulation being being tabled at Parliament. So the FSCA originally said that the, the first draft of real regulation would come out this year. We haven't seen anything yet. We're obviously only halfway through. But what I can say is, you know, in the current situation we're in, in lockdown with, uh, with COVID flying around, I'm not sure if the FSCA is going to meet those original deadlines of a draft this year. They've been enormously busy trying to put, for example, emergency regulation in place for, for living annuity policyholders. So watch the space. It may be this year or it may be slightly delayed. Well, thanks, Jen. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I think we've really covered a huge amount of ground over these two webinars. Now let's try and pull it all together. And I think the easiest way for us to pull it all together, let's make it real. Let's, let's think of some, some real characters out in, out in our uh, financial services industry. And although I'll give them fictitious names, hopefully they'll ring true with, with some people who are watching today. Um, so how about we look at someone in the PSA space, first of all. I'm going to call her Tarby. Obviously, totally fictitious name. She owns a Tide franchise and employs 20 planners and back office staff to go with that. She currently enjoys the freedom of being able to use products offered by her group 
And where there isn't the right product solution for her clients, she's able to use a third party product. What does all of this mean for Tarby? Sure, a lot. Where do we start? Let's start with uh, PSA or RFA. That's probably the first thing that I would be applying my mind to in Tarby's situation is what is my product supplier thinking in terms of the classification of my my franchise and all of the advisors in my firm? Are they thinking that they're going to push for us to, to be an RFA or are they going to require us to become a PSA or essentially tied? If they're saying RFA, so if your, your product supplier comes back to tell you that they, they're thinking you'll be an RFA, what does that mean for you? Are you using a lot of house view solutions from your product supplier? Is that a key part of your proposition? If it is, it, it may be a good time to think about widening that slightly to make sure that you'd be able to comply with whatever the RFA criteria and restrictions are when we get better sites of them. But that may be something to think of. If your product supplier is telling you you're going to be a PSA, what does that mean for you? What products and solutions is your firm going to be restricted to? Is that range wide enough? Keeping in mind from our first session and for those of our audience who weren't there, that the FSCA stance on gap filling, so using someone else's product where you don't have an in-house product to meet a specific need, that stance is still very, very strong and the FSCA is still very much against that. So, you know, Tabi should really be thinking if her, her supply is going the PSA route, is my product range too narrow? And what does that mean for me? How am I going to attract new clients? And how am I going to make myself attractive to, to the market? Absolutely. And not just to the market, but also to her own advisors that she's employing as well. So, so that's, that's a really uh, key question for her to be able to, to kind of try and grapple with. And, and coupled with that, she, she's also probably thinking about, you know, the, the relax, relaxation of uh, the, the uh, freedom of movements between FSPs uh, and that proposal. And, and, and again, have I got enough to keep all my planners with me? So, so it really does play into the hands a little bit of those groups that have a wide product range and can attract uh, not just the best clients, but also uh, the best planners as well. So, so that could uh, be quite an interesting place for, for Tarby to be. That's right. And don't underestimate as well what's in Tarby's space is equivalence of reward. Yeah, She's employed absolutely. by a product supplier. She's a franchise of a product supplier. So something else for her to really be wrapping her, her mind around is find out, find out from your product supplier if you don't know yet what is the equivalence of reward percentage currently for your firm and what is that percentage for each and every single advisor in your firm as well as yourself. And once you know that, you can see how far off that 15% proposed cap you are. If you're far off, it's time to start thinking potentially and ask those questions of your product supplier. Um, what is their thinking in this space? Are they going to be restructuring how they remunerate your franchise, yourself and the advisors in that franchise? So in the equivalence of reward, they are, for example, saying certain costs will be excluded. So office management costs, for example, um, senior staff management costs potentially out as well. So it may not necessarily be that in Rand's and since your, your advisors and your agents are going to get paid less, 
but it may be about making sure you're ready to restructure correctly to the, so that you, you come under that at 15% cap. But that, again, if I was a PSA in a franchise in particular, I'd be asking my product questions around that. Yeah, and they'll be putting a lot of thought and a lot of brain power into, into future-proofing themselves as well. So, so I'm sure there'll be um, a, a lot of discussion in those spaces around how to, how to structure Tarby to make her future-proof uh, going into the next round of discussions with the FSCA. Okay, so thanks for that, Jen. Now let's look at someone in the RFA space. Um, let's let's call him John. Again, totally fictitious. John runs a network of say a hundred advisors. Uh, they are keen to be seen as an independent advisor or an RFA, uh, but to be uh, commercially viable, of course. They also need to drive their own in-house solutions, which tend to be solutions created by their own in-house CAT2 function. John is keen to grow his network aggressively. Jen, what does everything we've spoken about in webinar one and today mean for John? So again, here, if I was John, the first thing I'd be considering is that foundational question of, do I want to be an RFA or do I want to be a PSA? And for those of us who joined uh, the first session, you'll, you may recall that what we're saying now is that the FSCA is actually suggesting that you can be a PSA or tied to a CAT 2. So if you are exclusively using investment management solutions from one CAT 2, and that CAT 2 is in-house, there may be instances where you will be required to be a PSA of that CAT 2. And I think that would certainly impact John if if I understood your example correctly. So John needs to be thinking about that. If it's very important to my business model and my proposition that I, I'm an RFA, that I'm not tied, how am I going to achieve that? And I'd be keeping close to those cat two changes in terms of RFA and PSA and the general advisor categorization rules and discussions as well. Um, if John's going to end up being a PSA, what will that mean? What range of products will be available to the advisors within that fairly large network? Something else I heard you say is, is John's looking to grow his network aggressively. And I know that's true for a lot of networks and firms out there. And something that we touched on, but I think that ties all of these things and all these moving parts in the RDR together is that there may be a great opportunity for John and others like him to pick up on advisors and advice talent, leaving the tight space and looking for a home with an independent network. And I'll, I'll tell you why, and it's really quite interesting. So when RDR first came out, that 2014 paper, what we saw in the industry was a flood of advisors joining the Tide Force. And, you know, very understandable in a way. There were lots of one-man band independents out there who became very worried. Am I going to be able to keep up with all of this regulation? Is the regulation going to restrict the amount that I can charge to the point that I can't I can't earn a living wage and I can't pay my staff. What is the cost of all this regulation coming down the line going to mean for my business? So what we saw is a whole lot of independence flooding into, into the tired agencies within the country. And what we're seeing now, I mean, it's six years later almost, what we're seeing is almost the opposite. So for a few reasons, the first being that, as we discussed last time, the RDR has rolled out more slowly than anticipated. And 
I think a consequence of that is it's lost its teeth somewhat. Advisors aren't as frightened of the RDR as they were when it first came out. The, the second thing that potentially is, is driving the move out of the tide force is the one hard stance that we really are still seeing in the RDR, which is gap filling. Advisors worrying, how am I going to be able to properly service clients in a tight environment if I don't have access to enough depth and breadth of product and solution from within my own firm? And the third thing, obviously, which we've touched on today is that equivalence of reward. If I'm being restricted in what I can sell and I'm being capped in what I can earn, is the tide space really as attractive as it used to be? So what we're starting to see in the stats coming through is a flood of guys now leaving the tide space. And just to give you an idea, in 2019, that number was 350 net. So that means net 350 advisors left the tide space. And that's an enormous amount if we look at the total size of our of our industry from that's bigger than most most uh, large networks out there so uh, that's that's the kind of that's the scale of of the movement moving from the PSA space into the RFA space so yes that really does put that into perspective Jen um and just going back to that uh, am I a PSA or am I RFA question of course, remember in webinar one, we talked about uh, the uh, FSCA perhaps looking at what the drop down percentage could be and maybe putting controls in there. And I, I remember we spoke about some numbers which had been banded around around 32%, something around that. So that could also be something that John needs to be thinking about, wouldn't you say? Most definitely. We don't know if the FSCA is going to go the route of uh, applying a percentage limit for in-house solutions. In a way, it does address the concern they have that if you steer an RFA, you must behave like an RFA. On the other hand, they're very much aligned with the thinking that regulation should be principle-based rather than rule-based. And I think we've seen that time and again, and some of the tax rules are a classic example. Where you make something rule-based, all it does in certain instances is give very clever people the opportunity to find loopholes in those very specific rules, whereas principle-based allows people to apply their minds and really, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder actually to, to get around a principle-based regulation. So we're not sure what, what those restrictions and those criteria for RFAs will be, but definitely in this scenario, John should be thinking about that. He should be looking at his proposition and he should be carefully thinking about uh, you know, that RFA and PSA debate. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so uh, finally, let's have a look at uh, a, a smaller firm. So let's have a look at Johan. Uh, he operates a smaller firm of say, two to three uh, financial advisors. He has a cap too, but actually he's only using it for signing instructions from his clients. But he also doesn't have a resident KI in his business. What should he be concerned about? First and foremost... No, no KI within the business. So in the first session, for those in the audience who weren't able to join us, we said that the current proposal in the latest FSCA paper is that a KI will not be able to operate across multiple licenses, an issue within a group of companies. So, and you mentioned it at the beginning, George, that concept of renting a KI, where you have professionalized key individuals operating across, you know, five or more licenses, that business model, I think, is potentially reaching its end if this RDR proposal rolls out. So for your hand, 
that's the first thing I'd be worrying about. And luckily here, we're not looking at the regulation coming onto us in, you know, in the next six months or even a year. So you haven't got time. I would start looking at the requirements to become a KI and putting those processes and those steps in place, RE exams, all of those good things that we, we need to do to be ready for this, to be ready to bring that KI license in-house into the firm before that regulation rolls out and leaves them high and dry. So I think there's an opportunity here to get ahead of this if you are in that situation and to start solving that problem before it becomes a real issue. The other thing, obviously, for, for Johan and his CAT 2 is, from what you said, he's not really using his CAT 2 for true investment management, but as more of a power attorney to sign instructions for his clients. So if the regulation and the proposals roll forward as we've seen them proposed now, Johan could be in a position to, to actually get rid of his CAT 2, to lapse his CAT 2 license, and to rather make use of a mandate for convenience to sign instructions on behalf of clients. And that would be attached to his CAT 1, as we said. And actually, if you think about it, for, for a firm like this, for Johan, that's quite a big win. Cat 2s aren't free. You know, they, they come with, with costs, as all these things do. You've got to be audited. You've got to pay your FECA levies. You've got to have all sorts of compliance and, and checks and balances in place. And, and that does come with cost. So it's probably actually a win-win for Johan. He's going to still get to sign instructions for his clients, which it seems to be his business need. But he'll no longer have to have an extra license in order to do that. Absolutely. Wow. So we, we've covered some, some nice characters in our, in our financial services industry there, but we've run out of time now, Jen. Uh, so it uh, really only leaves me to say thank you so much uh, for all your time and your insights again, as ever. The, let's watch this space. Let's see what else comes up in, this, uh, in the next FSCA's uh, paper. Uh, we know they give it to us for Christmas reading on the beach. Um, and, uh, and let's see what they've, what they've made of the comments that the industry has put in. Once again, thank you for tuning into our podcast series, Connect the Dots. For future episodes, subscribe to this podcast series from wherever you might be listening. I'm Georgina Smith. Thank you for joining me. Until next time. Innate is a registered trademark of Stanlib Wealth Management, PTY Limited, an authorized financial services provider. Provider. Provider.